I'm Ed Gross, and you're listening to CloserWeekly.com's classic TV and film podcast, where we celebrate the golden age of television and movies, then and now. Movie musicals have been a part of Hollywood from the beginning, capturing the imagination of moviegoers generation after generation. And they're still going strong, as proven by films like The Greatest Showman and Disney's live-action take on Beauty and the Beast. One of those moviegoers is journalist and author Lee Gambin, who wrote the book We Can Be Who We Are, musicals from the 1970s. The 70s were, as Lee points out, a turning point not only for society, but movie musicals as well. With that in mind, we've decided to talk to Lee about key films from that era. In the first of our two-part conversation, which covers 1970 to 1975, we kick off with a discussion of Barbara Streisand's On a Clear Day You Can See Forever. And we conclude, at least until next time, with the Who's Rock opera, Tommy. What led you to write that book? Well, you know, obviously a yeah, paycheck um, is a lovely thing, but there's, I assume there's a bigger motivation. Yeah, um, well, I, I come from a history of loving all film types, right? So I grew up watching horror films, westerns, musicals, noir, gangster films, pre-code, classic animation, TV shows. I, you know, I just loved it all. I, and I obviously still do. Um, and one genre that always struck me is something that, because I came from horror mostly pre- uh, predominantly as far as my professional writing career went. Right. So if you look at, if you look at my the trajectory of my career, it started with horror, um, mostly the, the professional stuff. So things like writing for Fangoria, and then doing um, different writing for different um, uh, periodicals or websites or zines or whatever was generally a horror thing. And then what I sort of realized is um, in sort of, you know, uh, you know, um, going through my love for certain genres is that horror seems to have a kind of um, uh, misrepresentation by people who I see as unenlightened, right? They think that horror is one thing. And I always thought the same with musicals. I felt that people just didn't understand that musicals were incredibly versatile and diverse, um, that not one musical is very is similar to another. So I wanted to sort of champion that. So I thought, okay, what's a way to do this? Let me choose a decade perhaps and do a survey of a particular decade that kind of really is electric in diversity as far as um, the genre goes. So I chose the 70s. And also I felt like a lot of the films were underrepresented and under-talked about and under-discussed. I'm sure everyone knows everything about Greece and Rocky Horror Picture Show, etc. But there were so many there like that. I thought, you know, people are missing out because they're so great or they're not so great or it's such a, it's, an, it's just an interesting decade. So I sort of sat there and got went through a list and thought this would be a good big sort of tome that sort of details this decade that was, you know, a changing period in Hollywood. Um, it was the start of new Hollywood um also you know a lot of times uh films like hello dolly and dr Doolittle get roped into you know how musicals were sort of falling out with the uh the audience um, needs i guess and they fail to realize that also at the same time films like oliver um were not doing that they were really successful so the idea of sort of championing the idea uh, musicals um as something that wasn't something that was falling out of fashion i guess quote unquote but also just to have a parameter as well. Sorry, a parameter. Bloody hell, I can't even speak. A parameter of um, a decade. So I didn't um, go outside of that. And so therefore, I could do a survey that stuck to 1970 to 1980. Um, whereas if you do something on, say, a subgenre or something, you could go all over the shop. Um, and it could just be endless, right? But this had like a clear time frame. So that was like a nice 
skeleton um, sort of starting point. And then I went through and I thought, look, I'm going to have to cover everything, not just narrative films, but, you know, documentaries and made-for-TV stuff and animation. Um, so it went through, you know, I went through the gamut and hopefully got enough in there. But, you know, <clears throat> going back, I'm like, fuck, I missed <laughs> a few. You know, there was about 13 or 14 that I realized I missed out on covering. But, you know, that's what happens. You know, you spend a couple of, you know, a year or so on a book and some things fall through the sidelines. But I'm not going to dwell on that and lament that. There's, ah. there's always time for a, rev- a revised edition anyway, right? Exactly. <laughs> the sequel. That's entertainment. Part two. That sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. So, so for you personally, though, I, mean, I know you said that you love all genres, and I get that. Is there anything particular about the musical that really appeals to you? Um, I think it's a, very similar to the horror film that they're very versatile, they're very diverse, okay. um, that they're all very different, and also um, the structure. I love the fact that uh, musicals are very much uh, about formula, about order and design, about structure, about. Um, you know, the, the, the whole idea that they're um, an escapist genre, um, uh, that they uh, they can say so much um, through song, uh, that they're kind of also maligned, that a lot of people just don't get them. And yeah. I, I, like, I like to champion that. Um, so I also see that I also see the similarity between horror and musicals as two genres that are pretty much a lot of times structured very similarly. Um, you'll, if you look at, say, like a subgenre of like the slasher film, you know, uh, the plot sort of goes, you know, dialogue and then a murder, right? And if you look at musicals, they're kind of structured very similarly. Like, you know, you've got dialogue and then when characters are so fraught with emotional sort of, you know, um, whether it's anguish or joy or love or hatred or whatever, they, they break into song or the, the, the songs emerge. So they kind of, I like that kind of marriage there. Also, they're two genres that people forget built studios. You know, horror films built Universal and musicals built MGM. So you have to respect this idea of, you know, these pillars, these incredible genres, musicals, horror films, westerns, etc., that really did generate the film industry. Um, and then when you get to the 70s, it's all very different. Um, and like I said, it's sort of in the new Hollywood mo- mode. Um, all these amazing auteurs, the last great filmmakers, I think, like people like Sidney Lumet and Norman Jewison and Martin Scorsese, all these incredible masters taking on musicals. It's really fascinating. It's a really fascinating period to sort of um, survey and look at. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, in terms of the horror comedy thing, uh, you were, a musical thing you were talking about, it's interesting because, like, you get a film like Willy Wonka and then you've got, you know, mm-hmm. dialogue, murder, and music. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. Well, that's exactly right. Um, Willy, Won- Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is a body count film, isn't it? Like, it really is. A lot of people yeah. die or theoretically die. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What I'd love to do is, if and if it's okay with you, now, does your book go up tonight include 1980? I don't remember. Yes, it does. Okay, so I didn't make that – add that to the list. So I'll have to do that. I made a list of just like trying to pick one or two musicals per year for that period. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could just give me your thoughts on those movies. Cool. That sounds so fun. Okay. Yeah. Anything – if you have interesting behind-the-scenes stories or observations about the movies, whatever it may be. Uh, right. If that works for you. Now, in 1970, I, I wrote uh, on my list, uh, On a Clear Day You Can See Forever. I figure Barbara Streisand has got to get in there. Yep. So Vincent Minnelli's second last film, this man, I feel, only made masterpieces. Um, the last two films, uh, one on Clear Day You Can See Forever, and the last film he did was with Liza Minnelli, 
Um, and I feel that one's kind of a little bit sort of uh, got it got got problems, but you know whatever. <laughs> but on a clear day, you can see Forever. I feel is a really rich, beautiful, amazing film that really sort of captures the turning point of the sixties into the seventies. Um, the sheer concept of the musical is remarkable. I re- I really loved it as a kid. Uh, the idea of uh, Barbara Streisand plays this chain-smoking student who wants to stop smoking, so she sees a, a, a shrink. Um, who hypnotizes her to stop smoking, but he channels her past lives. Um, and um, what happens is he falls in love with one of her past lives, but can't stand her current one. <laughs> He's actually annoyed by her current one. Right. So there's that kind of really cool play there. It's really brilliant. But what I love about that film is um, Vincent Minnelli's uh, art, uh, artistic sort of vision of how he presents the past lives. Um, and how he sort of marries that with the contemporary world, which is very still very stylized. Um, all of Streisand's costumes are very stylized. The look of the film is very stylized. Also, um, just the uh, the score, the songs are terrific. Um, very different to the stage show. So there's that sort of translation into screen that makes it very different and becomes kind of a bit of a, a Streisand showcase. Um, she's pretty much the only character that sings. Um, what I did find out is that Jack Nicholson, who plays her stepbrother, um, had a number and that was cut. Um, uh, and I think from research, um, they felt that it wasn't sort of moving anything forward or moving the story forward enough for it to sort of warrant it to be in there. And they, there was concern about Nicholson's voice, his singing voice. Um, so that was that was interesting to sort of find that out. But yeah. what I love about it is pretty much every factor of it. I think it's – I feel it's my favourite Streisand performance um, because she plays neurotic really well yeah. and, and she can friggin' – you know, her patter of just talking is just endless and it's really kind of endearing. And the character of Daisy, Daisy Gamble is an endearing one. She's sort of perplexed by this past life and the singing, her, her vocal talents is just, you know, nothing short of Marvel – you can't deny her vocal talents, regardless of what you think of Streisand as a performer or also as an entity and who she, what she represents and who she is. You can't not say she can't sing because she's a friggin' incredible singer. But also, it, it's one of those movies that I feel, and, there's, and, and, and a picture tells more than words, right? But there's a really beautiful still that I was lucky enough to get given to me for the book, which has Manali, Vincent Manali directing Streisand and the way she sort of is watching him and taking everything in, you can tell this is someone who is a master at her craft, learning from another master. And I feel like on a clear day, you can say, see forever is something that would jettison her going into directing herself. Um, and that sort of moves forward with her career as she becomes, you know, one of the big, big names in filmmaking from into the seventies and early eighties. Um, not just as woman, quote unquote, woman director, but as a filmmaker herself. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about Barbara Streisand's career in terms of the movie musicals she she did is you think about movie musicals in general and the ones that sort of transcend time, you know, I mean, I, I'm West Side Story, Bye Bye Birdie, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Yep. None of her movies really, maybe Hello, Dolly, but it doesn't seem like a lot of her movies have traveled the years in the same way that some of these other musicals have, which is surprising given her success. Yeah, that's it. I think they just get – Forgotten. Yeah, that's that, what I mean. That's, yeah, that's, yeah. Um, uh, I think that's the problem. I think 
you know, if you look at Manali's work, my God, the man did An American in Paris, Gigi, um, and then non-musicals that I love, like um, Home from the Hill with Robert Mitchum and Teen Sympathy, which is one of my favorite films ever. But like, he made this amazing array of films. And when he gets to this period, 1970, he makes this movie, which is kind of a interest. It's sort of a throwback to 50s, early 60s musicals. Um, and it's sort of ignored. It's it's never really discussed in his own filmography, right? He, they, they never really talk about, on a clear day you can see forever, when you talk about Vincent Minnelli's works. Right. Uh, uh, so that's kind of another thing. So when you talk about him or Streisand, this film um, just gets sidelined. No one really sort of talks about it or discusses it, which is exactly what you're saying. It's sort of it's something that kind of gets, you know, bypassed. But then if you look at Streisand's other works, where she, you know, are musicals like Yentl um, or A Star Is Born, I feel like they are also ignored. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like A Star Is Born is one of the most important films ever made of the 70s. It really sort of captures what the seventies was all about. Um, and it has major flaws. Absolutely. But it is an, a remarkable film. It's a remarkable venture and really does encapsulate what the seventies was about. I feel as far as not only the tone and what it's about, but also what the film industry was doing. So yeah, really interesting career she had, um, has, <laughs> and, um, yeah, but yeah, I love On a Clear Day, you can see forever. I think it's my most favorite, like I said, it's my favorite of her performances. She gets to do a lot in it. Um, and yeah, it's really fascinating to watch her do that. Also, another side note, which is quite uh, just a bit of an observation. Um, when The Exorcist was about to sort of um, go into production, there was talks of Streisand doing the role of Chris McNeil. Uh, really? There was, you know, yeah, there was a long laundry list of, of women of a certain age to play that role. Obviously, people like Jane Fonda and Anne Bancroft and others. But, um, yeah, but Streisand was on the list as well. Um, and if you watch one of the scenes in, on a clear day, you can see forever where she's sort of being hypnotized and going back into regression and finding her past life. She sort of does this sort of weird sort of terrified, uh, almost supernatural style performance. And you kind of can see where maybe executives or people kind of, you know, got the idea. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's interesting watching watching that sequence and th knowing that as part of the history of the production of The Exorcist. Yeah, it is interesting. Although, you know, I have mm. this image now of, of uh, Linda Blair with, you know, in her bed doing all sorts of horrible things and Barbara singing to God, you know? But anyway. Right. Uh, so, um, all right, for 71 then, I cannot not have it be Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Right, yeah. I mean, where can you start? Where do you begin? Like, it's just a, it's such a, it's, it's, it's an opus. Like, it's a really big spectacle film, but it has this gritty opening, right? This sort of really kind of documentary style feel to the opening with the whole kids sort of, you know, um, uh, finding the tickets and back and forths and things being presented via um, media, you know, media coverage being kind of a storytelling device there. And then you enter the world of the chocolate factory and the film just shifts, it changes. But what it does beautifully is keep the songs happening at the openings. And you've got, you know, um, Cheer Up Charlie and The Candyman and I've Got a Golden Ticket. So you know that you are in a musical, get used to it. It's not just going to start singing when we get to fantasy world. Right. So I like that element, which is very different to say something like Lost Horizon, the Ross Hunter production of Lost Horizon, where there's no songs until we get to Shangri-La, which I think lets it down. Uh, but anyway, 
let's not talk about that. But um, <laughs> Willy Wonka, I feel, uh, just I think it's a perfect film. I think um, uh, Joel Grey, who was initially intended to play Willy Wonka, would have been terrific. But I just love Gene Wilder. I can't see anyone else in no. that role. And he's so creepy. Yep. <laughs> the, like, it is just, it's unsettling. I remember seeing it first time as a kid going, what? This is unsettling. It, it, it is a creepy film. Um, the moral judgments, dicey, you know, um, the Oompa Loompas are sort of a moral guard, but they're letting these kids die and perish. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's kind of a really, it's a really interesting film and it kind of responds to, say, the recession that's happening. Uh, it's a universal film, as it not the studio, as in it's all about the d- different nationalities and races and um, class divisions. Um the idea of Charlie inheriting the gold, the chocolate factory comes at a lot of cost um, to him personally and spiritually, I think, as well as philosophically. He has to relearn about life. So the, the growth of Charlie's um, sort of arc is quite, you know, rich and dark and complex. It's not just a simple thing. Um, very similar akin to, say, Dorothy's growth in The Wizard of Oz, you know. He asks questions. He, he fumbles in the dark. He makes mistakes, which I think is really interesting. Um, superb cast. The songs by Leslie Bracuse. I mean, they are just, you know, beautiful, gorgeous songs. I think there's something um, uh, really ridiculously menacing throughout the whole fabric of the film um, that we've discussed before. But I think that's something that really, really sets it apart from, say, a non-musical child-centric film of the same period. I think there's something about Wonka singing pure imagination that is, yes, whimsical and sweet and promising, but also with this underlying sort of menace and darkness, Um, the idea that imagination can actually destroy. You know, Wonka is there to create and also destroy, and I like that about him. He's not a clean-cut, you know, uh, messiah. He's he's someone a little bit dodgy. (laughs) Oh, anyway, there's something mysterious about Willy Wonka, like what sort of abilities he has that he can sense these things about these kids. And (laughs) it's interesting, you know. Yeah. Um, And also making it into a like turning Roald Dahl's novel into a musical really sort of um, helps that element. I think if it was just a straight piece, you probably wouldn't get it. But with the songs, there's this false promise. And I think that's really interesting. It's a really it's a really kind of. I don't want to call it like a whistling in the dark. It's not one of those musicals, but it's a musical that is very much um, subversive. That's yeah. the term. So basically, you know, this idea of promise and stuff, but there's an underlying um, cost, um, which I think is really fascinating. It's a really, really smart film and very political. Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's and it's unlike on a clear day you can see forever. It has so aged and traveled over the years and is still beloved today. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, here's my big question before we move on. I don't know about you. Grandpa Joe pisses me off in this movie because, <laughs> A, he lays in his freaking bed for 20 years, makes his poor daughter do everything, and then he gets up and starts dancing around after 20 years, and then he's a mooch. Smo- you know, a mooch. He's constantly saying, what about me, Mr. Wonka? Jeez, back off, old Grandpa Joe. Anyway. Yeah, I know. I <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> But what I mean, Jack Albertson, incredible. He won the Oscar um, a couple of years earlier for Subject Was Roses, which I love, um, with Patricia Neal and Martin um, Sheen. And then obviously goes on to do Chico and the Man, um, sort of playing an extension of Grandpa Joe, really, like, you yeah. know, Kermudgeon and 
cantankerous. Yeah, because Charlie kicked him out of the chocolate factory, so he had to go work in the garage, you know? No, just... That's right, and deal with, you know, his racism. That's right. Exactly. That's why he got kicked out. He didn't like the Oompa Loompas. You see, we got a whole scenario yeah. here bridging it all together. So <laughs> uh, anyway, before we get too silly, uh, for 72, I wrote Cabaret. Okay, so this is one film that I feel a lot of people who, who you know, say, and they say stupidly, I don't like musicals, but, oh, I do like Cabaret. It's one of those things, right? There's a few of those films. Gypsy is one of them. I, you know, there's a lot of these movies um, that, you know, people who think they don't like musicals say, oh, but I love that one. And I think Cabaret is one of those. Um, I don't know. What Again, like Wonka, just a masterpiece. And, you know, that word gets thrown around a lot, but this is definitely the case for Cabaret. It is terrifying. Um, it's incredibly unsettling. It is so smart and grim and bleak and then gives you this kind of razzle-dazzle that is a lie. Um, the MC, as played by Joel Grey, who I mentioned earlier, is just as evil as Hitler. And I feel what I loved when I talked to him is that he played it just as evil and sinister as Hitler. He's promising stuff. He's welcoming people into his cabaret, into his Kit Kat club, but he's giving them this monstrous, you know, um, expression of how they should probably feel about themselves. And, you know, the idea of the rise of Nazism sort of counterplaying what he sort of is suggesting in his songs and what he presents. Um, Manali, Liza Manali's performance is outstanding. Uh, you know, just an incredible a gifted artist who just does this wonderful work. And she'd done a couple of things prior to it that I love, like Otto Preminger's um, Tell Me That You Love Me, Junie Moon, um, where she plays the girl with the scarred face, the battery acid scarred face, which is just a fantastic performance. And then Midwich Cuckoo. But, yeah, this performance is hers. You know, you can't – like like Wonka with Gene Wilder, you can't imagine anyone else doing Sally Bowles, really. Um the that room and the, the, the idea that uh, Bob Fosse changed the stage musical to present all the songs as diegetic songs. So no one, there's no integrated songs. It's all presented at the Kit Kat Club. Um, that was a really smart choice, I feel, because the one song he leaves outside of the Kit Kat Club is Tomorrow Belongs to Me, um, which is sung by the Nazi youth, which is the most unsettling evil song because it's a promise of happiness and good health and, um, you know, the beauty of nature and all this wonderful stuff, but it's all about Nazism. So it's really scary. Um, and that great image of um, all the, the the Nazis rising and the people who are questioning it or sort of not, you know, uh, a bit conflicted by this regime sitting down. They stay seated and look miserable. Um, and that reflects into the last image of that film, which is so haunting, where the kick-out club is now ruled by Nazis wearing the swastikas proudly. Yeah. And we fear for these characters who we've grown through loving, like Sally Bowles, who are, they're going to be dead. They're going to be gassed. There's no question of it. Um, the Bohem There's no room for these bohemian artists. They're just as evil or sinister as the Jews or the gays or whatever. Um, so really, really amazing stuff. The songs are just ridiculously incredible. And what I love about the film especially is Sally Bowles as a character is supposed to be not that great a performer. <laughs> and she likes living through the um, Kicket Club. That's how she exists. Um, and I love that aspect to her. And the film sort of, you know, deals with all this really heavy stuff. I remember being one of the first things I saw as a child where abortion was brought up um, and just the sort of, 
the sort of ghoulishness of the cabaret and the the way the dancers were all made up, I just hypnotised me. It's a really, really, yeah, just a dark, rich nightmare of a film, and I think it's just fascinating to watch. And Joel Grey, um, the interview I got with him was just beautiful, and he said, you know, um, in Germany when um, they screened it, the audience was not into it at all because they were just, why do we want this reminder of this history? So it was a really different um you know, experience for him when he saw it in Germany as opposed to America. Um, and just Bob Fosse, I mean, what can you say about this man? Like, you know, did so much and creates this really, really, really grim nightmare um, and paints it up um, with, you know, garish colours and, you know, this expressionist stuff, like German surrealism is in there and, um, you know, it's it's just this fascinating, dark, um, uh, I don't know, expression of um, uh, whistling in the dark, I guess, but much different to something like Man from La Mancha but, or Fiddler on the Roof. So it's very different in the sense that, yes, it's about a, an oppressive situation happening around these artists or these people, this community, but it does it with like a, a sledgehammer rather than sort of, you know, dilly-dallying. I don't know. It's a really, it's an amazing film. All right, then. Uh, it's a shame you don't like it. Uh, <laughs> <but> <laughs> for 73, now, and if you disagree and you think there's a better musical that we should put in instead, I'm more than open to hear it. Uh, no, I love it because it's, you can choose whatever because it's good to just bounce okay. around. I- All right. Well, then I put, again, another Broadway show coming to, you know, stage show coming to the movies, which, which by the way, for a slight tangent here, I find it so interesting now that we're we're in an era where, it's movies going to Broadway rather than Broadway coming to movies. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, Jesus Christ Superstar. I put that one oh, in for Yeah, incredible. Um, so Norman Jewison, I remember distinctly interviewing him for Jesus Christ Superstar as well as Fiddler on the Roof. And I did his interview with Fiddler on the Roof first. Uh, it was a sweltering hot day here. I remember it. Um, but that was just a brilliant interview because I think Fiddler on the Roof is a masterpiece as well. Uh, the perfect film about the fear of change and oh, just a perfect film that sort of summarizes youth culture as well, even though it's set at turn of the century Russia <laughs> during the Russian, you know, Tsarist revolution, blah, blah, blah. But Superstar, I remember saying to him, oh, now let's regroup next week and talk about your very different musical, Jesus Christ Superstar. And he said, thank you, because, yeah, they're two very different musicals. Of course they are. And when we talked on the phone about that, that was even longer. And so, and he's so proud of it. And I just, it was warming my heart to hear him talk about how proud he was of it. I feel like it's his most proud achievement as a filmmaker, um, just getting the vibe from him. Um, and it's a superb film. It is the perfect, uh, most innovative way to adapt this rock opera which really could have gone any way, any which way or direction. You know, you could have done it as a classical piece, so looking like exactly like, you know, the time of Christ, or you could have done it completely contemporary and updated it and made it, you know, set in the streets of, I don't know, LA or something. But they didn't. They went and did a hybrid um, with scaffolding in the desert of Tel Aviv and a bunch of uh, young sort of rock and roll types who are doing this sort of play out in the desert um, and then there's a mystical element because Christ dies, but he doesn't resurrect and they leave Ted Neely and, uh, and they all go back on the bus. So it's like, it's like this elaborate suicide in a sense, like he's dead and, you know, um, which made it controversial as well. Um, and just that f- 
fantastic score by Lord Webber, but orchestrated by Andre Previn, who just breathes brand new life into it. It's just so outstanding. And the performances, especially Carl Anderson as Judas, who should have been nominated for an Oscar for that performance, I really strongly believe that as the best supporting actor because he just knocks it out. It's the most dynamic performance. Um, and the lyric, the cynicism in the lyric from Tim Rice, I feel like Tim Rice was one of the best um, cynical writers. Um, Jesus Christ Superstar, Evita, Chess. They're really sort of dark, um, um, yeah, cynical, unsentimental pieces, I feel. And I mean that in the best way. Um, because they're not borrow, they're not tying into sort of a romantic notion of things. And then it's funny because when you got to do Aladdin after Howard Ashman died for Disney, uh, he had to throw himself into romance, which I see, and you can see it. And it's like, wow, very different writing, very versatile, amazing writer. But superstar, the the Todd Ayo cinemascope, sorry, the Todd Ayo lens, the, the the use of the camera, the use of space, um, the costuming, the aesthetic. The design, the way it sort of unfolds, um, the plotting of them being a troop of players, everything about it is just a perfect, clever way to present that rock opera because it could, like I said, it could have gone anyway, but it just was perfect. And I remember one of my favourite memories in my history of talking to people, artists and stuff, and I've done a lot, actually. I've done a lot of interviews now. Um, it sort of, you know, tallies up, as you'd know. You'd, you'd, oh, you'd yeah. Say. <laughs> but one of my favorite things is talking to Norman Jewison about my own critical thoughts of Superstar, what it sort of says um, as a commentary on the record industry. And I said to him, I've always read Jesus as the rock, as like the first rock star and Mary Magdalene's his number one groupie and Judas is his, you know, concerned manager. <laughs> and, um, and Caiaphas and Annas are like rival record agents or whatever. And he was like, oh, okay, and he, you know, he got that. And it was cool because sometimes you don't want to push your own critical thoughts on filmmakers, but he was really open to it and really loved it. And he told me great stories about, you know, the guys from Deep Purple and Black Sabbath on, um, working on it along with the Linden, London Symphony Orchestra and how that was so different. Um, and But they had to merge together to make this score. But all these great stories about that film and that production and, um, you know, uh, the original production, the original musical was obviously protested and so was the film and so, all, you know, by religious groups and stuff. But, yeah, just a really fascinating film and a perfect representation of that rock opera. And I have to say that Norman, I think one of Norman, not this one, but I'm saying Norman Jewison's most underrated film, I think, or one of his anyway, is and has nothing to do with musicals. Sylvester Stallone's Fist. I don't know if you've ever oh, seen yeah. that. I love yeah. that movie. I, I That's right, though. You know, just so sorry it didn't do well because it really was an interesting film. But anyway, that's a, that's a tangent. No, uh, it's a film, yeah. yeah. 74, The Phantom of the Paradise. Yeah, and again, like, just <laughs> this, again, so you have this wave of filmmakers like Jewison, like Scorsese, like um, Lamette, and then you have someone like Brian De Palma, who comes in and is and does this incredible take on the Phantom of the, Par uh, Phantom of the Opera uh, mythology, but sets it in the world of rock and roll. Um, you know, this excellent sort of art direction, uh, all the De Palma devices, the split screen, you know, the sort of bombastic colours and colour schemes. Um, 
the score, the incredible music by um, Paul Williams, just these great songs. Another musical that non, quote unquote, non musical fans love. Um, with and I always yell at them. I say you need to see more. <laughs> I love Shadow of the Paradise to death, but need to see everything. Keep watching movies. Keep watching more yeah. musicals and go back. But um, and Brian De Palma is obviously a massive fan of classic musicals because there's a lot of its influence in is in there. A lot of its influence is in there. Um, you can see Busby Berkeley. You can see all the stuff from Arthur Friedman, Busby Berkeley in there. You can see the stuff that you know, um, people who are unsung now, Charles Walters. Um, you know, um, all these filmmakers who did all these great musicals in the in the you know the golden age is in there in this rock and roll horror musical. Um, Jessica Harper's beautiful. Um, I love all the stuff that involves um, Paul Williams's character and the whole history of Faust and the influence of Faust in there. Um, and it's just a really cool, great sort of you know loud um, rock and roll film that I think. Uh, transcends uh, what you can do with hybrid film genres. I think it's like one of the most successful hybrids of two two sort of pillar genres. I think, um, and yeah, it just really it really works. Um, and the performances are great, and the songs are terrific. And it's just a, it's amazing that Paul Williams did so much during this period. You know, Bugsy Malone and the Muppet movie, and this, and um, Star is Born. And again, you kind of, you probably don't recognise that um, as far as these songs pertaining to films rather than just being seen as singles. And that's another thing that really irritates me. A lot of people um, sometimes uh, sort of appropriate songs uh, for themselves as an artist or, you know, oh, that song's that song. No, it's part of a, it's part of the fabric of a film or a, or a stage musical. So it loses its actual meaning yeah. um, as far as, as far as purpose and plot. Um, and also, yeah, the thing about Fabric of the Paradise is it's practically all diegetic, but I think it also comments on situation as well and, and scene. So that's interesting as well. He plays at that sort of, that trope as well, the farmer. And De Palma's not the guy you'd expect for a musical or for Paul Williams to be associated with rock and roll, really, if you think about what Paul Williams is known for. So it's pretty funny, that combination, mm. in my opinion. Yeah. What do I know? Um, all right, 75, I get to, I have two, and this is where we start getting into two per year, and if that's too much, you let me know. Uh, that's okay. Uh, Rocky Horror, of course, I don't think I cannot mention Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean Rocky Horror. What you know? Again, it's it's this sort of cult classic. Um, in my writing on it, I sort of discussed the magpie's nest that it is, um, and how it sort of and how it is this Richard O'Brien just basically grabbing everything he loved as a kid and chucking it into one thing. And I think that's fantastic. And you watch it, and you know you're like, wow. As an adult, as someone who you know is now you know, a sort of a pop culture vulture, you watch it and you go, wow, this is a perfect marriage, a perfect union of all these great elements. You've got, you know, the romance comics of the 50s, you've got horror movies, you've got slasher movies, you've got um, science fiction, you've got obviously musicals, you've got um, uh, the whole uh, muscle culture, you've got all this stuff, the comic books, you've got all this stuff, superheroes, all that stuff. You're all in this package and it just presents itself so wonderfully. And it's all about, um, you know, the whole message of don't be it, uh, sorry, don't dream it, be it. 
So it comes out during the sexual liberation movement. You've got women, uh, women's movement, the gay liberation front. You've got punk. You've got glam rock. You've got all this stuff happening, and it's a perfect response to it all. But what I do love about it as well is it doesn't play, play a clean cut, oh, just be happy with who you are and you'll be fine, because by the end of it, Janet and Brad are destroyed. Right. They are, they, they, they are, they're walking through rubble, and there's no happy ending. Um, and the conservatives win, right, um, who are pret- pretending to not be conservatives. So it's a really, once again political um, statement and, uh, you know, in a sense kind of is the, the, that lyric that Riff Raff says to um, Frankenfurter, your lifestyle's too extreme. It's this whole idea of, yeah, don't dream it, be it, but be it to a point. And I think that's that's not a conservative message. It's just that the, it's a bleak um, uh, premise that this – this this explosion of celebration celebration of rock and roll and punk and um, you know sex and sexual liberty and all this stuff comes at a cost um, in this story and I think that's really interesting because it would have been kind of dull if Janet and Brad were like all cool and happy and you know in drag you know in their fishnets and everything's all peachy keen I think that's not the nature of what the seventies was doing if you look at the the history of these musicals a lot of them have very very dark endings. Fiddler on the Roof has the Jews, you know, exiled from Russia. Uh, Cabaret has the rise of Nazism. And La Mancha, it's the Spanish Inquisition. These are things that happen where characters aren't, you know, completely going to be, you know, uh, strolling hand in hand, all cheery and happy like Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland in those excellent Arthur Freed, Busby Berkeley musicals. It's not the case here. So I think um, Rocky Horror Show is that. And as much as it gets championed as a, as a, celebratory thing people forget that element that that janet and brad end up sort of destroyed by their sexual freedom that they experienced for the last hour and a half um so i like that aspect to it the songs are terrific you know i always want um people who love and also rocky horror fans irritate me as well just quietly (laughs) because they don't (laughs) they don't see they don't see anything else that it's coming from so i always question them i go okay you know the opening song which is terrific how many of those movies that are listed have you seen? And they go, oh, none. It's like, well, no, you need to. So in the, in the same way that people who go, oh, I don't love musicals, I yell at them to go and see a lot. And the same people who love Rocky Horror but don't want to see horror movies, they go, no, go and watch all of these horror movies because that's where this is thing, thing, thing is coming from. Absolutely. So it's not, yeah, so, I yeah, I do love it. Um, but, yeah, um, I feel like it gets misrepresented and misunderstood and the fans are to blame for a lot of its, um, for just sort of seeing it as face at face value. It's got a lot more that it's saying. Um, and it's one of those great pieces that's like just a spark of genius where nothing really happens in it, but what it's saying is so much. It's right. so profound. Yeah. 1975 part two is Tommy. Oh, Again, like um, Ken Russell. Okay, so he makes The Boyfriend, he makes The Music Lovers, he makes Listomania, and then he make and then Tommy. So these four musicals in the same decade, um, and The Music Lovers, you know, is not a traditional musical, but it is. Um, it's a musical biopic, and just so devastating and brilliant. Um, and The Boyfriend is just a perfect example of tributing. Um, you know, classic Hollywood and just a stunning, 
perfect film. But Tommy is, yeah, I think my favourite Ken Russell film, and there's a lot. You know, I love The Devils, and I love Altered States. I love all. I love a lot of his work. He's a, he's a genius, for God's sake. But right. Tommy is just this freaking, again, like Superstar, it's a perfect way to do a concept album that was not yet a stage show, right? So it went concept album and then this film, and it's just perfect. And Robert Stigwood is a master producer. He produced, obviously, Superstar as well, and Grease and Saturday Night Fever. Just knew what he was doing, you know, this legend. And also um, the um, cast that they assembled and the way they present this this rock opera about this, this kid who's traumatised and then becomes this messiah to, you know, alienated, disenfranchised youth. Um, you know, inadvertently and via playing pinball of all things, this wacky concept, but presenting it so vividly strong and powerful and this wonderful commentary on the hypocrisy of religion and this excellent commentary on, um, you know, uh, healing and the, the, the role of the media and um, greed and corruption, all this stuff in this one rock opera and that score by The Who. I mean, you know, it is just outstanding and and Margaret's dazzling performance as Nora is just, you know, out of this world. As much as I love Louise Fletcher in Cuckoo's Nest, I really feel, and Margaret should have taken home that Oscar because I just think it's, I mean, you can't compare the performances. They're two bloody different right. characters. Yeah, right? absolutely. But I, you look at Anne Margaret in that and she's just heart on the sleeve. You know, she's stunning and gorgeous, but then there's ghoulish imagery of her. Like she lets herself look, you know, not as gorgeous as she is. And as she goes through this gamma, it's really her story as much as it is Tommy's. And Oliver Reed, my God, you know, I mean, my first impressions of Oliver, Oliver Reed as a kid was seeing him in a horror film and a musical, and that was Oliver and Curse of the Werewolf. And being scared of him as Bill Sykes, but feeling sorry for him as, as um, um, Leon, the werewolf. And... You know, that, that's what he does. That's how good he is. But in Tommy, he's just horrid, like this, you know, gruff, alcoholic, egotistical, and also um, uh, opportunistic uncle, right? Uh, you know, stepfather to Tommy. And just all those great set pieces, you know, the Tina Turner sequence, and oh, just everything was great in that film. And then also Barry, Barry Winch, who played the young Tommy, had some great stories to share. And most of it was really ridiculous, hilarious hijinks from Keith Moon, who would drive cars into pools, and him and Oliver Reed, Oliver Reed would get, you know, you know, uh, hookers and, you know, do lines <laughs> of coke with them and, you know, and, and just be drunk consistently on set and take lots of drugs. But that, just that anarchy, that sort of punk rock and roll anarchy that was on that set, I mean, you can see it in the film. Um, but Russell is such a master and just keeps it all together and keeps it working, and it's just a, it's a terrific piece. Please be sure to check out We Can Be Who We Are at Amazon or wherever books are sold. And join us for our next episode when the conversation continues. And as if we haven't asked you to do enough, please subscribe to this podcast, tell your friends about it, and give us a five-star review. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.